Welcome to the Final Draft Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Popel, but today I am handing over the reins to my journalistic bookish colleague, Felix Shannon, and he's going to be in conversation with Sarah M. Saleh. The Final Draft Podcast explores books, writing, and literary culture. Every week, Final Draft broadcasts from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, and at Final Draft, we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to the classics that you know and love. Each of these conversations takes a look into the issues that drive the author's storytelling, a way to help you discover more from the books you love, because these are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respect to their ongoing connection to their lands. These are unceded lands, and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. As I said, I am going to be handing over to Felix Shannon. Felix is the host, along with Ben Herder, uh, of Death of the Reader here on 2SER. Go make sure you catch the Death of the Reader podcast wherever you are getting this podcast. Felix is going to be in conversation with Sarah M. Saleh about her new novel, Songs for the Dead and the Living. Songs for the Dead and the Living has been described as a coming-of-age tale played out across generations and continents from Palestine to Australia. It sounds like an incredible novel and I cannot wait to hear more about it. So join Felix and Sarah to discuss Songs for the Dead and the Living. Sarah Msala is an award-winning writer, poet, human rights lawyer, and the daughter of migrants from Palestine, Egypt, and Lebanon. She's the co-editor of the groundbreaking 2019 anthology Arab Australian Other Songs for the Dead and the Living is her first novel. How does one inciting incident shape generations to come? A newlywed couple in Palestine is torn apart by the emerging conflict in the aftermath of the Second World War. Aisha flees to family in Lebanon, and so has fallen the first domino. Decades on, her granddaughter Jamila grows up knowing a paint shop in the outskirts of Beirut to be home, but that knowledge is shaken as conflict pushes the family further from the homeland to which they cannot return. When the ground beneath your feet is always shifting, how can you know where you belong? Join me as we discover Sarah M. Salah's Songs for the Dead and the Living. Welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you, Felix. I'm so excited to be here to chat to you about uh, my book. So one line that really stuck with me through a lot of the book was a moment early on where Jamila is reflecting on her new bond with Jad and realizes despite all the change they'll go through, her effort in remembering that moment would keep their story and that it had in fact once existed. When we're dealing with these conversations you've mentioned uh, that you had over various kitchen countertops about this family history, what was it like coming over those moments, those little reflections that made the past real? That is such a beautiful question to start with. And I love that because this is that sort of um, really culminates how this book came to be conceived, really. I I, uh, started writing this novel. It was actually a spec fiction, speculative fiction book. And the more I was insisting on writing that, the more Jamila and her story sort of pulled me because I was very much inspired by my mom's history and my mom's migration story. Um, Just to take a step back, I have been thinking a lot about, you know, as we enter this world of of healing and the language around like uh, self uh, actualization and all the kind of insta, you know, language around um, what it is to be someone who is um, 
owning their story, looking at themselves, looking at their healing, going through that journey. And the more I reflected on that, the more I realized that it was tied to my past, my history, my parents and looking at, okay, so the way that I am is in large part due to how I was raised and how my parents were also raised. All right, looking at that, understanding the context that they were from as migrants, as people who have come out of war and conflict and exile, as you said. So this book was a real opportunity to be able to talk to my mom, have those conversations and understand those moments and those stories, you know, are pretty much our only inheritance. And they are as, you know, as migrants who move around a lot because of all those reasons and have come to shape us and shape who we are today. Yeah, I mean, I, I really love the way that using that you've portrayed time through the book because so much of remembering those stories and sharing them with other people is disjointed as, you know, something will inspire a moment of recall. And you kind of captured that flow perfectly as both memories of the past and of the future interrupt the book's present. You know, I guess capturing that feeling without disjointing the reader must have been a challenge, but also would have been a really natural experience for you visiting those stories as you went to write them as well. Exactly right. I think it's really reflective of how memory and trauma work because there's a lot of fragmentation and you, you kind of piece the story together, but it's not really in a linear way. But ultimately, the overall narrative in your head sort of still makes sense or still has this flow that I was trying to convey in the story. So without um, rupturing that or undermining that, it was really just about bringing the pieces together, reflective of how this works. It's never neat. It's never linear. It's never, you know, uh, in a way chronological, I think. But um, I and a lot of the times processing things that happen, particular, particularly, again, big, you know, ruptures tend to happen when you least expect it or tend to be triggered by a moment or in the mundane as well. So I think that that's really what I was trying to get across in in writing the book. There's a a line from a poem of yours, Possible Worlds, where you close insisting on living when only death would let you in. And I was thinking a lot about that when we look at Teta Aisha and the way that she relates to that timeline of the book where in that memory orientation of the book she either dies over and over again or altogether refuses to die because of the way that she keeps coming back in everyone's lives and the way that Jamila's reflections on her own story make it very ambiguous as to where in Teta Aisha's life we actually are when uh, where did absence won't be long first enter your life I mean, I actually wrote that for the book. And um, part of that for me was inspired by this um, concept of the Nakba, which is uh, essentially uh, an event that happened in 1948 is the dispossession of Palestinians from their land. Um, So sort of the one of the like defining moments of colonization for us. Um, But I would also argue that Nakba isn't, you know, a one off. It's colonization. So it's structural. It's ongoing. And we carry it through generations as Palestinians um, through our family and our lineage and our ancestry and, and our story. And the other really significant thing is that um, where we exist in a time where language media and, and their you know mainstream discourse has tried over and over again to erase us and to pretend as though we didn't have these we don't have these stories we didn't have this connection to the land that we didn't have home and so keeping that memory alive you know alive in a way in a sense that far transcends our bodies uh, alive through memory and story for me is probably the most symbolic of Teta Aisha and that song because again as 
migrants and as exiles, as people who have had to move from place to another, we don't always have the luxury of being able to have physical heirlooms or manifestations um, like a lot of people do, or we haven't been able to inherit kind of material wealth. But I, I don't think uh, for me that matters. I think we've inherited the most important thing, which is, you know, story and song. Yeah, it's so interesting because uh, there was a conversation you were having with Jazz Money where you were talking about how one of poetry's main purposes was for politics, for questioning those in power, and for bringing people together. And I really uh, love that idea in the sense that when we look at culture from all around the world, there is this tendency to like kind of you know appreciate less uh, art from places that we don't understand, but that is very much changing now that we're starting to have you know, stories like Arab, Australian, other, um, you know, what do you feel that change has been in understanding that poetry has the same purpose around the world? So many pieces to that question. And I think I might start with the, you know, the poetry, because for me, I get asked as a poet and an activist a lot, you know, what's the point of it? Like, what does it change? It doesn't do anything. And, you know, just um, these questions around wasting your time on art. And I think it's so completely the opposite. I think it's critical. I mean, I don't want to bring up the C word, which is COVID, but uh, I did anyway, because (laughs) I think um, that for me, all the things that we kind of uh, consumed, so to speak, is what sustained us throughout that time. And Mm. that was art and song and music and TV and all of that stuff. And that's art. And so um, when we talk about poetry and whether that can actually change anything, aside from the fact that it is part of our very long um, history of beautiful oral um, storytelling and heritage, you know, poets um, were once occupied the most critical positions in societies. And to this day, poets and artists generally tend to be the most progressive, which is why in authoritarian or sort of like, you know, oppressive regimes, they are the ones that are the first to be persecuted. Mm. So for me, you as a poet, you have a job to create language and uh, incite thought and give people, you know, the tools or allow them to have this um, ability to to think and to be moved. And that is really the first step towards what I would call um, transformative uh, politics, that mm. that um, that transformative imagination, that ability to imagine different and work towards that create that move people into that that's what art and poetry does so for me it might not have a real tangible effect in the sense that it's not going to um i always say this you know shut down a detention center or bring down the apartheid wall uh in israel but um and palestine but Damn, here yeah, I, was I know. About to quote that right off the screen in front of me. <laughs> um, but you know, and don't I wish it? But that's not how this works. But we are building critical consciousness. Yeah, I mean, one of the other things that's really interesting about when we look at Aisha is that um, the the end of that quote that I was about to to you stole out from under me there was that you uh, aren't going to stop writing just because your power stops there at the last line or the last word. And I love that the way that Aisha is presented through this book means that she never really has a last word because. Every Everyone keeps bringing her back. Teta Aisha, I think, to me, is the culmination of what it is to be Palestinian or one part of it. Uh, I think, again, in the face of uh, constant erasure, these are the ways that we're able to own our history, own our stories, and keep bringing them back through the memories of people and their experiences. Mm. And I think, I mean, obviously, this book is fiction and Teta Aisha is fiction, but as I said, it symbolizes a much larger uh, you know, picture for Palestinians and why it's so critical. But also to say that 
our stories, like we have never, you know, our stories are invisibilized. We mm. have not been invisible. Like we are not silent. We have been telling stories for, you know, um, since the beginning. And so for us, I think that is the most crucial understanding that we um, actually have the power to keep telling our stories and to keep pushing for space. And um, I think that that's we've gotten to a point where thanks to communities where we've come together and kind of created these altar spaces where we can bring stories that have long been locked out um, to the fore. Um, it's now uh, undeniable. Yeah, I mean, I, I also love that even though the book is about the power of stories and the written word, particularly songs, as the title might imply, Jamila's art of choice is actually photography, which the poet and me really love because of that <laughs> idea of reflection and distortion that is intrinsic to the technology exactly. behind the art. But I guess why was it photography that you felt would best fit Jamila for that? I think it's also saying something about... Um the connection to the land and being able to see that and bring that through the lens and the other sorts of, um, I guess, symbolism that will occur throughout the book that I won't ruin for people. But uh, I think for me, that was one thing. And also, it, it wasn't necessarily just about, you know, camera as weapon of choice, um, because that also I find really interesting in that we have tried so hard to quote unquote convince people of our humanity to um, tell them uh, you know of the ongoing colonization to show them using again undeniable proof through camera through lens mm. you have a front row seat to the occupation to apartheid and there is still very little being done and where we are not believed um, or you know again the counter narratives or the stronger narratives are allowed to you know continue to be platformed so for me I think um, it's about being able to subvert that using these tools and a wider kind of commentary on art and art as uh, a way to find yourself so it's not just about sharing story for everyone else but it's also about how you um, how you uh, grow and develop as a person and and the kind of um, tools I guess that you need to face all the world and its mess and for me art is one of those things that allows that. Yeah I mean speaking of that mess one of the really great short passages in this book uh, that I really loved was when uh, Beirut reaches its peaks in conflict you mentioned that there's like a boom in art that all of the businesses suddenly are doing poetry and little dive bars and people are enjoying that I guess it makes sense, you know, you were talking about that, how that was for all of us during the pandemic, but I guess, was there a process of discovery and realizing that that's what places like Beirut go through in those times? I mean, I think that I mean, it's still almost going through it. And for me, that was one of the reasons why I also, or so many reasons why I wrote this book, but one of the foundational reasons was for me, again, how this one moment you know, that happened 70 plus years ago can literally shape and decide the trajectory of, of my life and the absurdity and like, you know, of and uh, the absurdity of notions like borders and citizenship and so on. But it was also about the history and memory of um, the civil, the Lebanese civil war and how though, again, that ended, you know, in the early 90s, uh, 30 years later, it's still something that very much has an impact on families and people to this day, whether through trauma, but also through other um, means like people still can't find their they're missing and they're dead. People don't know what happened to their family members. Mm -hmm. And that really does create um, 
you know, psychological marks that will stay for you with you for the rest of your life. So I really wanted to be able to explore that. And so I, I grew up on that. I grew up on these histories and I grew up seeing it in the people all around me in the, the most kind of littlest of ways, but also in really big ways, as I said, big ruptures. So I was very much interested in exploring that aspect of it and understanding how people survived it because just because there's a war happening outside it doesn't mean that people stop completely living you know people still have to love and laugh and have little joyous moments and still dance and still have music so you really do find in the mundane these little moments of joy and I suppose that for me is kind of one of the biggest things yeah, and it's also so difficult as well because the fact that things keep going makes it very easy for people to uh, forget that these conflicts are ongoing. You know, there is this sense that over like the past year, for example, the war in Ukraine has somehow become less real because we are seeing more of that healing process going on while the conflict is still going. Yeah, I think it isn't that uh, a matter of uh, attention and power. Mm. Ultimately, at the end of the day, who gets to decide what's important and what's not and what's on our radars and, and what's not. And I mean, just because we've stopped paying attention to it, it doesn't mean people aren't, um, you know, suffering in, in very real and valid ways across. And so, I, again, for me, this is this is exactly part of that. We haven't forgotten and I don't think we'll be allowed to forget anytime mm. soon. Yeah, and I mean, it also, uh, I think, speaks to something that you, uh, I think I think it's uh, Jamila's father that says it in the book where um, they're fleeing to Cairo uh, before the beginning of part two of the book and he says that the border guards are looking for Christians and everyone in the car gets really uncomfortable and there's this quote that death has no religion and that idea that no matter how much we compartmentalize all of yeah. these things going on and it's not affecting me, it's still happening. Yeah, eventually they'll come for you, right? Because this isn't about religion and what you, you know, what you practice and which God you pray to. But ultimately, it's about values. It's driven by corruption and greed and, again, power. And these um, are just win like this is just window dressing. It's just a reason um, to kind of feed the masses and have them uncritically, you know, get behind you uh, when it comes to sort of a thing, you know, a situation like war. And I mean, for me, Lebanon is so such an interesting place because it is a very small country and a large population. Obviously, there's a massive post-colonial um, hangover um, I won't go into, but anyone can Google that. Uh, we, you know, colonized by France and divided um, from Syria, though we still, you know, we, the land kisses each other, the people and the culture, the traditions literally kiss each other. And so that's how close we are. And to have to contend with this and then to bring all these factors into it, um, such as religion, you know, and uh, sectarianism, 17, 18 different sects in a country that's small. And again, having that co-opted and manipulated for purposes, again, of, of power and greed. Um, yeah, that to me is something that uh, again, I, I still we st we are still reckoning with today, and and was very interesting to be able to explore as in the backdrop of the book. And um, for Palestinians, another layer of you know injustice and another layer to have to uh, of you know to have to contend with. I think one of the other big roles for religion through the book is, of course, like ceremony. Um, you know, Amal's wedding is one of the big set pieces of the opening of the book, for example. And there's a very clear indication through that of the matriarchal lineage that's going through because, you know, Aisha left her husband behind originally and slowly the men of the story are thinned out almost by attrition, <laughs> uh, leaving, you know, leaving this very strong voice 
how much does that speak to your experience coming from a family like this and the power of that matriarchal lineage? Oh, definitely. I mean, that's part of, um, I think, the inspiration for this book, being able to really reflect on the ways that Arab women in particular uh, speak back to patriarchy, speak back to the violence of borders, the violence of partners, and how they are able to subvert that and, and continue to uh, survive that um, in ways that might seem, again, very um, small, but also are very much built on um, this, you know, sisterhood and relationships and and uh, love and joy and the bonds between them. And so I think that for me comes out very clearly, uh, I hope, in, in the relationship with Jamila and her sister's cousin, and even her mom, who obviously has her own past and own demons to contend with, but still is, uh, you know, trying her best to sort of um, look after them in the way that she knows how, even if it is misguided. And I do also like the way that each of the women kind of have ways that they defend each other. You know, for some, it is putting up a barrier in front of people that are trying to do harm. In others, it's trying to open their world. And I love the way that Jamila is trying to kind of help others discover the art that's keeping her safe. I guess for you sharing this story which is very much you know speaks to your family experience what is it like being the person sharing that art to try and do this healing <laughs> I laugh because um I'm like I was I was literally thinking um they don't my parents don't get it my family doesn't get it you, you understand <laughs> like, my yeah. question you understand like, my question they're like um are you an engineer a lawyer or a doctor those are the only viable paths Sarah <laughs> uh no uh I I kid I actually think you know my family has been very supportive uh you know on this front and though it took a while to convince them again I understand I you know I started this by saying it kind of my curiosity peaked as I was on my own journey of healing, still am, um, thinking about and also just giving room and allowing room for my parents and their flaws and understanding that they're infallible. Mm. Um, I think that really um, strengthened our our bond and our connection um, because it wasn't coming from a place of judgment on my end. And again, understanding that they did the best that they could and that they knew how to in very difficult circumstances. And, um, you know, again, moving from country to country and being very alone and isolated and cut off from community. And so for me, I think being able to allow them to, or show them my world through art um, feels like uh, an invitation, feels like a welcome, and it feels like it's a kind of a very generous thank you in a way that doesn't, um, again, doesn't feel judgmental, but feels also easy for them to step in and out of. Yeah, because I, I really love the way that Jamila takes that role because it speaks so much to Aisha's bond with her in that Aisha was not necessarily an artist but carried on that narrative storytelling tradition that inspired her. Um, which is why I thought it was so wonderful when we get to Cairo and uh, Ustas Farida, bookshop owner, reminds Jamila of her grandmother. And as they speak briefly of their values, he decides to give her Palace Walk uh, by Naguib Mahfouz. Yeah. Nobel Prize winning author, um, Egyptian background, Naguib Mahfouz. Why that book when the family in it is so removed mm. from Jamila's world? I think that for me, again, because of how we've grown up and the like the eurocentricity of curriculums and of culture i feel like our art and what we have you know have to offer which again has always been there um is very much underappreciated and so for me part of 
being true to my heritage and myself and appreciating that was bringing in sort of intertextual references uh, and and also that a reflective of reality. Like Jamila wasn't in there reading, you know, James Joyce respectfully. <laughs> like she was going to be in that context reading um, Arab authors, listening mm. to, you know, uh, Arab music and I think uh, you know, uh, Arab musicians and Arabic music, um, which again also we, we reference um, in the book quite heavily. And I think, you know, Arabic background um, speakers will be reading this and probably rolling their eyes at just how like real and relatable it is. Uh, and I also, I, part of that was for me to just convey that this is our reality and this is, you know, you are seen. Like this is actually something that is very organic to our heritage and our background and how we grow up and part of our appreciation for art and culture. And so that was a very kind of deliberate choice. The other thing that I will very quickly add is if you read the book, there are sort of some hints and I'm not at all um, <laughs> saying that I'm anywhere near um, the incredible um, literature of Nagib Mahfouz, but there are some kind of themes that parallel or mirror that. He was very much writing about a social commentary on Egypt and patriarchy and the role of religion. And I kind of did the reverse. So it's like mirroring it back. Yeah, I mean, and I, I love that it is the, the male bookshop owner who reminds her of her grandmother that gives her that book that comments so much on the patriarchy of Egypt. You know, it's a place that she's just arrived in, and I love that this character spots the situation she's in and is like, the book for you. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, I think Sespharid is a really... Um fascinating character and I part of it was yes sort of um, again this mirroring of her relationship with her grandma and understanding that you can find your people anywhere and so you know these concepts of belonging and being um, you know and identity I guess questions of identity are very fraught and very difficult and they kind of ebb and flow and I feel they're quite fluid and again depending on place and where you are you can always find your people and and people that you share values with values around art and values around you know a rallying against the patriarchy and Ostaz Farid for me is not necessarily he's surprising in some ways and again I don't want to ruin that but there were I you know I because of the context in which that's written, which is um, the 80s, mm. uh, there are some allusions there around who he is and what his background might be and, and his own relationship with art and what he's trying to overcompensate for mm. that he's bringing um, as well. So none of these characters are without their their complex backgrounds, their demons that they're trying to contend with as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't necessarily have a question to this, but I do love as well the way that the timeline nature of the book that we were talking about earlier supports those complexities because you very much create the opportunities to reflect on the new things that we're learning by jumping between the past and present and future. It's fantastic. Thank you. Now, I've, I've jumped us already into part two of the book and I don't want to take away people's opportunity to discover too many things for themselves. So I'm instead going to refer to the blurb here um, where... in. It says, in the end, Jamila will have to choose between holding on to everything she knows and pursuing a life she can truly call her own. And I think there's this perception, perhaps, that the book, uh, not, not necessarily debunked, but clarified for me, where there is this idea that when you get to a country like Australia, which is 
free from conflict that some of these traumas are over and you can be yourself. But it was so interesting, this this thought that the book explores that getting away from that conflict doesn't necessarily allow you to be who you are because home, as the prologue of the book says, is somewhere else. How difficult is it to try and get that through when it takes generations to experience? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so many strands of thought here because I think uh, there are no easy answers. And in a way, I almost feel just based on my own experiences, I share, you know, I share intersections and geographies with Jamila, but obviously it's not um, autobiographical or memoir mm. as, as um, I've made you know clear. But sharing those intersections and geographies means that I also share the feelings, mm. the questions and um, understanding what it means or exploring what it means to straddle home and homeland and the relationships that you've cut off, you are cut off from and how you so badly want them to manifest in this new place. Um, but also understand that that's, you know, that's not the case, but it's also an opportunity for new relationships. So there is that aspect that you're, you're constantly trying to juggle between letting go and also um, embracing the freedom you get of mm. in a new place. I mean, that's what every teenager wants, right? And that's the I think one of the biggest tensions of being in that position where you do really crave um, stability, security, family because uh, they are undocumented, um, and and you find that out early on in the book. And so they're undocumented, and that comes with a lot of uncertainty. And again, moving and moving also very uncertain but finding this place where you have a bit more certainty on that front but then want also the freedom to be able to go out there and dream and explore and make mistakes and love and all, all of that stuff I think and, and use art as as again a tool for self-discovery I think for me those were some of the biggest tensions that I had a lot of fun mm -hmm. uh, fun <laughs> quote-unquote exploring but also I, I mean I don't really delve into this in the book um, for obvious reasons but there is the notion that we're coming to this place Australia you know colony stolen land what that means for someone who is a back of you know of a background that is um, Palestinian meaning you know we're we've been dispossessed but now we're in this colony and we're complicit in dispossession as well so again a lot of tensions that you one needs to kind of explore and it's really hard to resolve and I didn't want to be an ungenerous writer yeah. so I did you know I did there are some kind of loops that are closed perhaps or maybe some things that seem a bit more hopeful optimistic certain but others that I left open and the reason for that you know finally is because there are many ways to be Palestinian in the diaspora or in you know back in um, quote-unquote Middle East and so there are many ways to be Palestinian and many ways to be um of that background, whatever, you know, however that mix is. And I wanted to kind of write to that, to that complexity, to those experiences. There's no right way to be, but also um, that comes with a lot of baggage and a lot of questions and uh, how, you know, how do you contend with that without um, giving into the inevitability of, of grief and loss? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that really nicely speaks to something that the the kids in the book are really strong at representing, which is that the kids are always looking to the future, even in the peak of conflict. Like there is always that, that next step that they have to take, whether they like it or not. And that optimism that hopefully that next step will be better. Yeah. And, and part of it might be 
um, their coping mechanism. Uh, but part of it is also, uh, you know, like a, the coping coping mechanism is, and it's my only way out. And mm. we see that with, for example, um, the oldest sister, who's an, uh, you know very present in the book, but we know her um, exit, her story, and we know um, the second sister uh, as well. So uh, there is that. Um, that like that that thinking around this being you know my only way out and so I've got to take it and that's the choice I'm going to make and I'd rather live that way um, but there's there's also the fact that again teenagers and kids tend to be dreamers and so mm. you that doesn't stop even in the midst of war it just it, you know your parameters or your circumstances might shape it a little bit more differently or might limit it but the beauty of imagination is that you don't really have to give in to that limit yeah and I think to bring us back to kind of where we started the thing I wanted to touch on to close is that, you know, you had all of these conversations over kitchen countertops with your family to kind of unlock the stories that you've explored in your art, both in this book and in in your other work. And, you know, soon those questions will be being asked of you over a kitchen countertop <laughs> by other people looking to explore that experience. It is an ongoing thing, I think, is the interesting thing. You know, the book the book does end, and I, I quite enjoyed the way that it ends. I've, I've got a quote here um, that I, I dare not read because it was it was really great to get to it. But, you know, it, it is ongoing. So where to next? <laughs> Someone called me an elder the other day, and the daggers, I glared at them. <laughs> an elder. Like, what does that even mean? Because I often refer to, you know, obviously I'm here as an artist. Uh, this is the first kind of book written in this literary landscape by, you know, a Palestinian woman um, about an undocumented Palestinian mm. woman. And I'm really proud of that. Uh, I'm really lucky to have been able to write it. But also I didn't get here alone. It takes a village to create a book, as you all well know. But also I stand on the, you know, the shoulders of giants like Randa Abdel Fattah and other authors here, Arab authors, um, who have been, uh, you know, doing a lot of the grunt work to, you know, allow us the space, the mm -hmm. breathing room to be able to do this. And so I really want to acknowledge that. And I have teachers and mentors and still do, obviously. So the fact that someone who uh, is a poet and was attending this uh, poetry retreat that I'd organized a couple of weeks ago called me an elder um, made me cry a little inside. Um, <laughs> but I think really... Um, that and and it was that is such a beautiful and wonderful thing. And then I think he quickly realized and corrected himself and said, "But we've all supported each other here, so we're all elders in one way or another." And I'm like, <laughs> "Good save, I don't think, yeah. good save." <laughs> I don't think that's how it works, but okay. Um, but no, I think honestly, for me, aside from continuing to write and just wanting I think the more I write the the more I wrote this the more I wanted to keep writing yeah. and so that's definitely going to be you know um on the radar in the future mm -hmm. but I also really strongly believe in using the privilege and access that I have to be able to create space and elevate other artists and hopefully make it a just a little bit easier for them um particularly again artists from marginalized backgrounds Arab backgrounds Muslim backgrounds um, so that they can share their stories and have their voices heard uh, without, you know, maybe with a little less of the obstacles that we face. So I'll be doing whatever I can to create these communities or help create them. And uh, yeah, and, and you'll hear more of my stories soon, I hope as well. Fantastic. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us here on Final Draft. It's been wonderful having you here and I've enjoyed reading this book so much, even though it's a step outside of my usual murder mystery wheelhouse. Though shout out to the one Sherlock Holmes mentioned in part one of the book. That that made me feel at home. <laughs> I'm so glad that, yeah, that you felt very seen. <laughs>
It's been wonderful having you. Thank you. Thank you. That was a really great chat. Thanks. That was Felix Shannon in conversation with Sarah M. Saleh there. We were discussing Sarah's new novel, Songs for the Dead and the Living. It is out now. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You will find us on on the socials. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Also, just another shout out. Check out Death of the Reader, Felix's main show. It is an incredible world tour of murder mysteries. My name's Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more incredible conversations from great Australian authors here on Final Draft. Till then, happy reading and bye for now.